Good evening. Um, it, is, it is tremendous to get to be here this evening. I know Amelia and I were talking as we um, were coming in and as we were driving up here today, just how thankful we were going to get to be uh, to be back here tonight. We, we value every single memory that we have of this congregation um, and, and everything that it means to us. We are so thankful. Um, if you want to go ahead uh, and be turning in your Bibles to the book of James, we'll be beginning there in just a moment. appreciate uh, Philip introducing me. I, I, I don't know if most of you know me. Uh, not, I'm a super excited. Uh, like you said, we're at Southgate. Uh, this summer, we're having Becca Worley and Joseph Cartwright at Southgate with us. So it's just going to be a whole bunch of former Mount Juliet people, still current people down there this summer, um, and, and I'm personally super excited for all the opportunities that we're going to get with each other this coming summer. Um, in 2016, Ryan Gosling and starred together uh, in a vastly successful movie called La La Land. Now this movie, um, if you haven't seen it, by the way, uh, I'm going to give every spoiler that has ever happened. So this is your fault. Um, and, and don't go watch it because you know the entire ending. Um, but, but this movie was incredibly successful. And, and, and for about 30 seconds, it was the best Oscar winner of the year. Um, and, and then it was like the wrong envelope. But it was definitely nominated uh, as one of the best movies of the year in 2016. Um, the story goes where it was two people who had moved to Los Angeles. One of them had the dream, Ryan Gosling's character had the dream of he wanted to play jazz. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to share the love of jazz with the world and, and bring back old jazz music. And the other uh, main character played by Emma Stone had the goal of becoming a superstar actress. Who, why else did you move to Los Angeles, right? So, so these two characters um, both had these dreams that were just immense, unreachable for most of the world. Everyone, nobody can reach these dreams, and yet they both want to go, like, find these dreams. And, and throughout the movie, they end up meeting each other in, in terrible circumstances. Um, but in any Los Angeles movie, of course, they fall head over heels in love. And, and they're madly in love, and, and they're struggling because they're each chasing their dreams. Um, but they have one thing that's constant, and it's each other. It's, it's a dream love story uh, that could rival like classic, I say classics, like 90s classics, greats, like You've Got Mail, um, easily top five rom-com of all time, uh, and then like the music that for like you recent folks could rival The Greatest Showman. I know it's not for everybody, but, but for you people who love music out there, it has great uh, music that so many people loved. Um, and the love of these two characters is so strong in these movies as they are each other's rocks as they struggle to find the dreams that they were searching for. And you just know that at the end of the movie, the result is going to be marriage. And you're so excited for it, and you're so excited for him to get down on that knee and propose, and then they break up. Oh, trust me, that's the end of the movie. I just spoiled it for all. I'm so sorry. Um, but when you watch this movie, everyone who left the theater, and, and I, I don't care if you liked it or disliked it, what you found is that if you left that movie, you left it with sort of an empty feeling inside of you. It's like, man, this thing, this thing that you wanted so badly because it's Los Angeles and it's a movie, this thing that you almost needed didn't happen. 
their love fails. No, it's a movie, so like we can't dig too deep into it. But but at least you're asking, like, why did their love fail? Why on earth did these two people who seem like they had the best connection ever, why did their love fail? And it's because they didn't have everything they needed to make a long-term relationship work. They, they didn't have the desire to be with each other more than the dreams that they were pursuing. He wanted a career in jazz, and, and she wanted a life of an actress. And if they were to have to get those dreams, they were going to have to be apart. See, they had a love, but, but they had something else that was interfering with that love. And while a successful relationship, like for the characters that Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone played, while a successful relationship takes more than love, it requires more than faith to live a godly life. I hope you're opened in James chapter 2. I don't, earlier I might have said James chapter 1. That was a, a total misspeak on my part. Um, automatic failure. Uh, <laughs> but we're going to start um, in verse 14 here. Uh, when Philip asked me, hey man, what are you speaking about? Um, I said it's like a classic lesson from, like, faith without works is dead. And, and it is. And a lot of times we go to this path, we look at it, and we're like, man, that's something that we talk about so often. But I hope that we can dig into this passage tonight and, and try to reach in and grab something there that, that's at least encouraging or maybe something a little bit new. But I want us to read the first part of verse 14. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if somebody says he has faith but does not have works? Okay, stop there. I know you all just read the next part because I almost did. Um, we'll get there in a moment. That was also a spoiler if you read ahead. Um, but what I want us to do is, is before we like truly get going into kind of breaking down this lesson, I want to break down these two words, faith and works. Because so often it's so easy for us to go through and read this passage, and it means a lot if you just read it with faith and works, absolutely. But what I want us to do is I want us to take the time to dive into like what the words faith and works mean. Because I think that both of those, when you look at them in, in, in their context and sort of where they come from, they change a little bit um, or, or enlighten what the verse says. The word faith here has an interesting definition. Uh, the Greek word, if you, if you look back towards the original translation, is pistis. Um, and, and you might be saying, okay, why is this a big deal? What's the Greek word have to do with it? Um, the cool thing about this word being used, we see faith used throughout all of Scripture. But when we come to this word right here, this word uh, of faith that is used in James chapter 2 is not one that we see happen until the New Testament. As a matter of fact, it's not one that we really see happening until the, the, the New Covenant starts taking place. And it, because it has an entirely different meaning than what the word faith did in the Old Testament. The definition of this word, as used in, in this text and in, like once the new covenant has started, it means reliance on Christ for salvation. It's this idea that your faith is reliance on Christ for salvation. When you sit there and say, yes, I believe, you're believing in this fact that you have Christ as your salvation. So that's a very um, almost interesting way to look at it. It's a different mindset that we have than, than just a belief. It's this idea of a reliance on Christ. We have to rely on Christ for the salvation. And then we get to this idea of works. 
And the Greek word here from the original translation is, is ergon, which means to toil as in an effort or occupation. That one stands out to me. The word works means this idea as to toil in, as in an effort or occupation. And so when we read the word works here, it's this idea of, of you're literally toiling and working hard in, in an occupation or a full-time job, what you do for a living. It's something that's a part of you. You have to do it every single day if you want this to have this survival. And so this is, when we read the word works here, I want us to think as we're reading it of this idea of a full-time job. It's something that we're continuously doing. And I want us to discuss why breaking down these words and looking at them in their original text and like their original makes a difference. Because when you read it, and I'm going to read it back and insert the definitions of the original text, and, and I want us to like, sort of see what it says. I think it says something that, that to me, when I read it for the first time with this, it, it really popped in my mind. It was like, whoa, that, that means a little bit more than I had ever realized before. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if somebody says he relies on Christ for salvation, but does not toil at it like it is a full-time job? What good is it, my brothers, if somebody says that he relies on Christ for his salvation, but he does not toil at it like it is a full-time job or like it is an occupation? When I read it like that, it pops out and is different. And then he ends this verse after he's just made this statement that's so difficult to grasp and so difficult especially to apply to ourselves. And we, he ends it with the question of, can that faith save him? Question mark. And then he's going to continue on to something else in just a second. He leaves this idea, can that faith save him, as like an open-ended question, as a rhetorical question. And it's kind of funny, when you read this passage in, passage in James, um, I don't think he was ranting by any means, but it's almost like he's sitting there and he's writing, and, and I don't know about you, um, this actually might just be a me thing, so, so it might be you too, but when you get excited about something, you're like going on and on, and you build on your conversation on each other, so it's like, and this, and this, and this, oh, and this, and this, and you're like building on to this conversation. I almost feel like James is doing that here. He's sitting here and he's saying, what good is it, my brothers, if you have faith but not works? Can that faith save him, and then he's about to continue on in his, in his quick conversation, but he leaves this as a rhetorical, open-ended question. And sometimes it leads me to think, like, okay, why, James, are you doing this? You've spoken so clear. Why are you leaving this as an open-ended question? Maybe they knew the answer was no. Maybe they knew the answer was absolutely that faith cannot save me if I have faith without works. Or maybe that, that, that is a question they have been sending off to James saying, uh, James, um, can you answer this for us? Because like we're having arguments about it and uh, we can't seem to figure it out, so can you give us the easy answer? Or maybe it's something that was like a normal conversation, like, okay, uh, over here, I'm going to do a good thing, but over here, you can just have faith. As long as we have a few of us in the church together, we're all good, we're all fine, we're all dandy. Nothing's going to affect But I think that no matter what his meaning to leave that question open-ended was, I think he makes a point that is so clear. And James is going to take it from there 
And instead of just giving a straight answer, he's going to illustrate us this picture that when you imagine it and and think about it, 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 it's almost vile to think about. I want us to read, uh, starting in verse 15, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? Okay, I know we're going to stop abruptly there again. Um, I don't know if you ever argue with people. I, I'm sure that you do. Uh, it's, it's a human thing. Like, no, nah, I, I want to do this. Uh, maybe it's about where you want to eat that evening. Maybe it's about um, more serious things. Uh, I know that myself um, will often have very silly ideas in my head, ideas that make zero sense whatsoever, but it does not matter. I'm going to passionately stand next to them. Um, and, and I don't know if you've ever been in like an argument with somebody and then they just come at you with this um, mindset of like, uh, what about this point? You're like, it's a good point. And you have nothing to do. It's like they, they just drop the mic and walk off the stage and there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, this is something my father does to me often. He, he, just, he just makes me look silly. Um, and, and I think that James, in this passage, um, is hitting this them with this idea, and I think it really drives the idea home. He's sitting here and saying, okay, you want to argue with me, have this conversation with me. If you want to question me at all about if you can have faith without works or works without faith, what we're going to do is I'm going to paint this picture for you really quickly. All right? And he tells the story about this idea of somebody coming that's sitting there on the side of a tr- on the side of the street without clothing, without food, and you look at him and you say, "Ellie, you know what? Go on, be warm, be filled. You're all great." And at that moment, the conversation should end. At that moment, the conversation that James is writing should not have to continue because the point is made pretty clear there. There's no response that could be given. It's just like when my dad makes that point that, that, that really just makes me stop talking. It's that same exact idea that if anyone wanted to respond, they can't. They don't have a comeback whatsoever. And I think the toughest thing in our world today is that so many of us, so many of us, are going to respond. And it's such a tough idea, and when we get to this point, and, and maybe we're sitting there and we're like, no, 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 you know, there's not a response needed here. I, I'm not going to give a response, and we're not going to sit here and verbally state that, you know what, that passage is just wrong. But I think the fascinating thing is that a lot of times with the actions and maybe with our thoughts and ideas and and the way we go in our lives, I think a lot of times that we find ourselves bonding this story that James tells about that person sitting there without clothing and without food on the side of the road. How often do we see somebody in need and pass by them? And I know that's like a cliche idea, but but I just want you to hang in there because I think the cliche point here is, is so powerful. How often do we see somebody on the side of the street in need and walk past them? How often do we know that we have an opportunity to spread Jesus and, and like we see it sitting there and it's like laid in our lap and all we have to do is say something and we just look at it and we, we smile and, and try to change the co- topic, try to change the conversation. 
How often do we look at people and essentially say, go in peace, be warm and filled? Do we see ourselves placed into this story? Because when I look at myself, I sure see myself here. I see myself every single day getting an opportunity failing. And it's not like a fresh thing, like, man, I just started failing. Now, I think that when we look at ourselves, and I think that this is a common theme among human beings, is that when we look at ourselves, we could look and say, man, I failed today, and I failed yesterday, and I failed, like, and uh, congratulations to the college graduates. I'm realizing, like, that is why we're here tonight. But maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, uh, like, I failed to do this in college, or I failed to do this in high school. I'm failing to live the example that I should be setting for other people. And it brings me to this scary thought, and like, and this is about to sound like really harsh, and I don't necessarily mean it to sound really harsh when I say it, um, because like we all do meaningful things, and I don't want this to sound like I'm saying we don't do meaningful things. But when we look at our lives, and we look at like when we walk through our life, and we go to school, and we go to our jobs, and we do different things in our lives, would we look at ourselves next to James, who has just come off this passage of saying pure and undefiled religion is, is to, to take care of the orphans and widows and to remain unstained from the world? Do we look at ourselves and sit here and say and realize, like, we fail to do anything that means anything in relation to the Scripture? That is a challenging thought. And if we're living in this life where we look at ourselves and we're saying, okay, well, I'm failing to do anything that means anything. James would look at us here and be like, what good is that? What good is what you're doing in your life? And I want to ask the question, and it's almost a challenge, like, do our works reflect our faith? And that's probably a general question. Um, but I think that this is the toughest question that, that we can ask ourselves is, do our works reflect our faith? And before I answer this, like, like a lot of times, I, I'm sure that our minds, and, and when you first think about it, your mind might be like, man, um, have I done this recently? Did, my faith says I need to do this. Do I do this? Like, am I, am I living how I need to be? Am I, am I sharing the gospel with people? Am I living unstained from the world? Am I taking care of people in need? But I think the toughest part to the question of, is our works reflecting our faith? I think the question to that answer could almost always, 99% of the time, be yes. Because if our, worth, if our works aren't reflecting our faith, maybe our faith isn't there. This is the idea that James is presenting through the inspired word of God when he sits here and he says, what good is that? What good is that, that we're going out into life and doing this stuff, and, and maybe you're doing great stuff, and, and I hope you are, but what good is it to sit there and do all this stuff, and, and maybe you're doing good works, or, or maybe you have strong, strong faith, but if we're sitting there and, and we don't have works that are reflecting our faith, James will look at us and say, what good is that? If you're not all in, if you're not toiling daily in the faith, maybe you don't have the strongest of faith. He would ask, are we all in? This is sort of uh, 
maybe off topic, not really. Um, <laughs> there's a hockey YouTube blogger. Um, <laughs> it sounds super weird. Um, he's very odd, trust me. Uh, but every year, he he's, lives in Toronto, um, and so he's a big Toronto fan. And every year around uh, playoff time, so ask all the people... He's weird, but he still gets a ton of thousands of views and subscribers. But he asks his subscribers, subscribers the question, are you in? And, and he has all these people chant with him. It's, it's very odd. Um, but the idea is, are you in on these playoffs? Are you in on this fact? Do you have faith in this team to go all the way? And he, like, he shouldn't have faith. That team is terrible. Um, but thankfully, we have a faith that can be strong. And the question I want to ask us is, are we in, in the sense of us saying, okay, I'm ready to drop everything, Lord, to come for you with the works that I have, and I'm ready to give my all to you and give every work I have in my body for you. Verse 17, it says, So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. Our faith without that toiling is literally dead. And if we don't have the works, it shows that we don't have the faith. And I think this passage continues to get even more beautiful because I think he sits there and says, okay, so are you still skeptical? Now, when we think about this passage, he's sitting there writing it. This is why I think he's almost like on like a little mini rant. Um, but in verse 20, he continues on and he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Um, I'm sure he's talking in an intense voice. Uh, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Um, sure, let's do it. Uh, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Um, you see faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And I think that the end of verse 22 is, is one of the most interesting passages of Scripture that we have right here. In, because it says that his faith was completed by his works. Can you imagine an incomplete project? Can you imagine something like, like if, if we were building, oh, here's an idea. If we were putting in um, like these railings and you were only put in one, that would be an incomplete stage, correct? So, so it's this idea, he's building this idea of Abraham without works would be incomplete. Abraham without faith would be incomplete. It's when those two become one that faith becomes its fullest point. When it's something complete, we spend an abnormal amount of time from our pulpits and in our churches, and in our Bible classes, and in spiritual discussions, discussing this idea of faith. It's something that, like, is preached on so much, and, and that's why when Philip asked me what I was talking on tonight, it was, like, very easy for me to be just, like, a generic lesson on faith, because even though I didn't believe that about this lesson, I was sitting there, and it's like, when we hear, like, oh, it's a lesson on faith, our minds are immediately like, oh, great, another one. You're not like that. Um, I hope you're not. Um, but I think a lot of times we can be like, man, we talk about faith so often. And what gain is it for? For what gain? Why do we discuss this idea of faith? Why are we sitting in this room right now, open to James chapter 2, reading a passage about this idea of faith and works? Because sometimes it's good to have a challenge to ask ourselves, what are we going to do with it? 
Why are we sitting here discussing faith? And are we going to let our works complete it? I remember something um, when I was in high school that, that a preacher named Jeremy Hall said, uh, and, it, and it stood out to me so much. And, and I, I want to, to go to the passage um, that he used. So let's go to Matthew chapter 16. This, this stood out to me, uh, and it stuck with me for my entire life, like since I heard it. Um, I'm sorry, Philip, that I remember a lot of things from things you said as well. Um, not just Jeremy, uh, but this is, this is stuck with me. Um, in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16, it says, and I tell you, you are Peter. So he's, Jesus is sitting here talking to Peter and building this idea. And, and he says, and on this rock, I will build my church. And then he says something that, that should give us courage beyond belief. And he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And Jeremy Hall brought this to my attention when he spoke to us um, all those years, like six years ago, five, I don't know. It wasn't that long ago. Um, <laughs> but when Jeremy talked to us, is, is that this, this has been one of my favorite verses in Scripture since then. And, and something he brought to my attention was like, so often we misread this verse. When we read this verse, we think like, yes. There's no way that, that, that when the world comes at us and we are faced with all these trials and adversities, like they can come at us all we want, but we're going to sit here and we're going to be strong. And that's a great feeling. It's great to know that the world can't attack us. But when have you ever had a gate attack you? It says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. See, we read this verse so often with this mindset of like, like, man, nothing's going to touch me. But I think when Jesus is sitting here talking to Peter about the church, about the fact that of what we're sitting here doing right now, us in our personal lives, when we have faith and when we have these works that are going to come into our lives every single day, are we attacking the gates because when we attack the gates, when we go against the world, when we stand up and we say, you know what? I'm done with just sitting here. I'm done with walking into an auditorium and listening to a lesson a few times a week. I'm done with that being the extent of my faith. Because when I read in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is sitting here talking to Peter, what Jesus says is that when I go out into the world, there's nothing that can prevail against me. There's nothing evil that's going to prevail against me because I have more power than anyone because I have the Lord behind me. And yet we have that confidence and so often we're just so willing to talk the talk and let that be it. Sometimes when I read through this and I think of this, I shake my head in, in disgust at myself because there has been, you could have been doing so much more. I'm going to go back to James really quickly. Um, and James 2 verse 23, I'll give you a second 
to get there. He continues on after this. After he's sitting here and he says, talks about Abraham and, and, and talks about the completion of his faith. It says um, in verse 23, in the, scripture, uh, in the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Uh, you see that a person, this is verse 24, is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prophet justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Okay, so what he does is he sits here and he lists all these people and he lists these people. When he's writing to this, it's it's the Jews um, from Jerusalem who had been scattered abroad. And so he's sitting here and he's writing to these people um, who would have known all these stories, who would, who would have known who Abraham was and who would have known who Rahab was. And, and these are people who would have looked at, at James and or looked at these people as like heroes. They would have looked at him and thought like, man, Abraham, man, Rahab, look at all these people and how great they are. And he goes through and points out, you know what completed those people? It was their works. And then he gets to verse 26. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. When we die, like when our spirit leaves our body, our body's dead. I, I don't know of like a, of a more like plain way to put that. And it's like a hard thought for so many of us to imagine like what that takes place. And I know it, it causes so much struggle for us when it does take place. And he makes this comparison that I think is so strong and it, and it, when we really think about it and think about this idea of like when the spirit leaves the body, when somebody dies, they're dead. And he makes this comparison and he sits here and he says, when faith apart from works, it's also dead. He makes a comparison of sitting here and saying, like, if you have a faith and you claim you have a faith, yet you are sitting there and your works are not a part of you, works are not something that's active in your life, you've chosen to take works and toss them to the side, you're essentially the same thing as the body who has had the spirit leave you. You are dead. Your faith is dead. It's worthless. It's not worth anything anymore. It's not living in the notes, I wrote, like, Ben, note to self, make this comparison work. So I was, like, continuously going to repeat it until it, it, it sat there and made sense because I don't know if we often read that verse and let it drive home of how dead our faith is if we don't have works sitting next to it. If we don't include works in our faith, it's going to die, and our faith will disintegrate. How are we working? Are our works like a full-time job? Do we remember that the definition, like we read at the very beginning, of like what the original text and like what the original language was sitting here talking about? This idea of, of we're allowing this, these works to be like a full-time job so that our confidence and salvation can be there? Are we toiling at it like a full-time job or is it a once-a-week thing or a once-a-month thing or a once-a-year thing? We look at ourselves. What type of faith 
do we have and what type of works are we using every single day to make sure that our faith is not dead? Maybe tonight you look at your faith and you're like, man, I think my faith is dead or I think my faith is dying. We would love to pray with you tonight and encourage you along a path to to come back to where your faith is alive and well. Or maybe tonight you look at yourself and you're like, wow, I I have not put on Christ in, in baptism, but tonight I'm ready to allow my faith to come alive by the work of baptism. We would love to baptize you tonight. If there's anything that we can do for you, please come as we stand and as we sing.